calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 4, Episode 15. Prologue. A different time, a different place. It was nothing like she had expected, and she had foreseen it. The infinite metaphysical plane lay before her and behind her, and she was painfully, horrifyingly aware of how small she was. Not just herself, but all of humankind. Everything they found purposeful, necessary, important, holy. It was worth exactly nothing in the scope of this massive place of other. Apollo was not with her. He was not here. Asante had promised her she would be all right, had promised her that this quick jaunt to this place would be momentary, a blink shorter than a breath. But she had been there so much longer. The Pythia hadn't foreseen what this place would be like or if Asante would be victorious. She could see only one way to tether herself, to hold on to home so she wouldn't get lost here, falling through infinity like a frantic height. Asante and her power glinted on the horizon, something she could focus on. However, she appeared on both horizons, where the Pythia had come from and where she was going. Beside Asante, in the past, were Menchu and the rest of her team. The vision in the future consisted of Asante alone, standing under a shining tree. Her eyes were wide and silver, sightless to the visuals around her but full of all sorts of visions, the kind that Pythia herself got. Other images, shadows nipped at her ankles and blood-red smoke swirled above her. The world was in flux, and it mattered as much as humans disturbing a puddle of water matters to the organisms living inside it. But who was disturbing this puddle? Her sight was frustratingly dead here, aside from seeing Asante at each end of her journey. 
She tried a few steps and found she could walk in this blind nothingness, and her mind began to form something to understand. A road, a sky, and flat, flat earth. She closed her metaphysical eyes and concentrated briefly, then shot her awareness behind her, aiming it at Asante as if to harpoon her like a whale. If she could anchor herself to Asante, she might not get lost here. The tether struck home, although she might have sent it further than she had intended. That was all right, and that was probably necessary for all of this to have happened, and for the things that would happen in the future. Possibly the near future, but the Oracle of Delphi again sensed the shadow beasts that lurked in the corners of her awareness and saw her destination so far away. She was not going to die here, alone and lost. When she had been anointed as the Pythia after the death of her predecessor, also in the company of Asante's team, she had promised herself to be more aware of threats, to not die on the whim of a vain moment. She might not get lost, but it would be a very long journey. She took her first step, trying not to meet the eyes that glowed in the sky, focusing on her. One. Now. Around 2100 hours GMT, aboard a train to London. Flights to the ravaged city of London were no longer an option to travelers, but the train still ran. Liam found something poetic about that. He wiped his hand over his wet hair and shivered. He was soaked to the bone. His phone buzzed, and he fished it out of the waterproof pocket of his jacket. He read the notification and smiled then passed the phone across the aisle to where Manchu sat with Asante. They both looked terrible. Manchu seemed world-weary and hadn't bothered to clean the blood off his hands and clothes. The bandage around his hand was soaked, and Liam couldn't tell if it was from his own wound or someone else's blood. There had been so much blood. Asante had gone in and out of consciousness since boarding, and Liam wasn't sure you could count what she did as sleep. He touched the bandage on his neck. He had really gotten lucky there. He looked forward to getting home and seeing Francis. He hadn't felt such anticipation, giving a happy tint to his overall mood of exhaustion and moroseness in a long time. He had to finally tell her that he could take a step forward, that he could actually show her he cared. He'd had enough close calls in his life to know it wasn't just the facing of a possible death scenario. It was something else. He wasn't going to question it. He was also hoping he had done enough to finally deserve her trust. But then again, things like what he was feeling for her would come along for people much less deserving than him. No one was keeping score, handing out patient, loving women to deserving blokes. How did you get this posted? Menchu asked, frowning at Liam's phone. I am just that good, he said. My spider was programmed to release some pre-written news items if a number of things happened at once. Mainly all having to do with the Angstrom's online activity. You know, they're trying to brag about what they did. But this is what goes up instead. He tapped his phone. Menchu smiled wanly and handed the phone back to Liam. He glanced again at the words. Oracle of Delphi closes to pilgrims as the Pythia goes into meditative trance. And then slipped the phone back into his pocket. He fixed his mind on Francis as he leaned his head back and tried to get some sleep. Asante stirred and found Menchu awake, 
staring past her out the window at the twilight farmland outside. Liam's plan worked, he said. They can't brag about what they'd done, not yet anyway. His jacket was ragged and blood-soaked. He hadn't bothered to clean up after the fight. She wondered how they had managed to get on the plane in Athens while covered in blood, but some blood existed on different planes, she had learned. The rest had cleaned up at the airport. One did not wash one's hands in the sacred spring. Even to remove the blood of the Pythia, especially to remove the blood of the Pythia. I suppose they wouldn't be subtle about it, would they? Asante said. He sighed and shifted, holding his ribs and wincing. No, Liam has managed to negate the intimidation they are trying to sow. They succeeded in doing the same for the maitress. You just missed it. Missed it is an interesting term, Sal said. She sat across the aisle, one row behind Liam. The window seat next to her was empty. I would have been very happy to have not seen it. Sal was cleaner than the rest of them, mainly because Grace had insisted on cleaning the wounds on her arm and hand before they had left. Sal wore a t-shirt with a white bandage wrapped around her bicep. She shivered slightly, and Asante wondered where her jacket was. Grace appeared at the head of the car and walked down the aisle carrying Sal's jacket. She caught Asante's eye and then glanced away, her jaw working. Asante sighed. Would she ever win that woman over? They'd worked together so long, and still the trust wasn't there. Grace handed the jacket to Sal, who gratefully grabbed it and shrugged it on. She made a face. It's damp. I cleaned it for you. There was a lot of blood on it, Grace said. Sal smiled at her. That was sweet. Thank you. Asante turned back to Menchu, giving the women their private moment. The Pythia's vision came true. Again, she said. Menchu shook his head slowly. I think it was too high a price, Asante. Much too high. Why didn't she tell us everything that was to happen? She's an oracle, Asante said. She doesn't elaborate as a rule. Even when her life is at stake, it wasn't a question. Even then. He opened his mouth, then closed it. He closed his eyes also. What you did back there, he began, and she stiffened, ready to defend herself. It was well done, he finished. She let out a breath. Liam, too, that move at the end was brilliant, brave, and stupid, she said. Where did that come from, Liam? She's right, Sal said, poking him in the back of the head. You were really impressive. Liam grinned somewhat shyly. Don't know, but it felt good. Keep doing it, Menchu said. I'm proud of you. Liam looked about to burst with pride, but Menchu pulled him back to the topic at hand. Her last words, what do you think they meant? That had bothered Asante. The Pythia dying in her arms spouted obscure wisdom that she couldn't give details on. The nightmare of the magic worker. I think what we thought was a moment in time was longer for her. Maybe a lot longer. They were silent for a moment. Shit, Liam said. That would have sucked. In short, Manchu said dryly, 
I think you shouldn't put any more people through that spell before we know where there is. Circumstances called for it, Asante said, trying not to sound offensive. Menchu nodded. True, I just hope the price wasn't too high. They were quiet for a bit. Grace broke the silence. The other thing that Pythia said? Are we really going to go to either place? No one wants to go back to the Vatican, Liam said, echoing Grace's earlier comment. Menchu shook his head. Agreed, but if what the Pythia said was true, and it always is, Asante reminded him. He glanced at her. And it always is, then we have to investigate it. The Order will need our help, and we should be there to give it. And get arrested in the meantime, Grace snapped. They don't deserve our help. Manchu looked over his glasses at her. They are innocent, so will be targeted with magic. If you still believe in our cause, then you'll help them. There's nothing innocent about them, Grace said, but didn't meet his eye. We'll be careful, Liam said. I can get us fake documents. We can hide our faces. It'll get us through the airport. And then what? Sal asked. And then we save the Vatican and make them all say they're sorry for how they treated us, Liam said, smiling. Grace surprised them all by laughing out loud. That I would like to see, she said. It'll never happen, but I'd like to see it. Beside her, Sal had gone quiet again with a faraway look in her eyes, and Asante marveled at how effortlessly she had taken over leadership of the group. As their trust grew with regards to Asante and her magic, the team settled into an assumption that Sal would have a good plan for their Vatican approach. The sun was going down, the only illumination being the shattered, unearthly light that marked London, always glowing with magic on the horizon. Two. Eight hours earlier. Delphi. Thunder boomed, its accompanying lightning giving the temple an unearthly blue glow. The floor had a purple hue that was unexpectedly lovely. Sal shook her head and put her bandaged hand in her pocket. Liam, Grace, do you know your roles here? Naturally, Liam said, fingering the hilt of his sword. They are coming, Asante said, eyeing the storm. Step one is complete. I need to work on the next bit. You lot worry about the fighting. Sal focused on the Pythia, sitting calmly on her dais. Are you ready for this? Are you sure you don't just want us to get uh, the hell out of here? Liam asked before she could answer. The Pythia fixed him with a calm gaze. You know the answer to that. He sighed and nodded. Grace and I are gonna flank and ambush them in here, create a major diversion. Meanwhile, Asante is gonna do whatever she does for the next bit. And the whole avoiding a knife in the chest thing? Sal said. Your sacrifices took care of that, the Pythia said calmly. I am prepared. Apollo is with us. She closed her eyes. All right, Liam, you set up your ambush over there. Sal pointed to the entrance of the temple. Use the storm to your advantage if you can. She looked at the Pythia. Are you ready? Did our sacrifices give you enough ammo? Ammo? Manchu asked. In a fight, everything is ammo. Grace answered for Sal from her spot atop a column. The Pythia nodded. Sal didn't know if she had total faith in them or was so convinced she was going to die that she just didn't care, but the serenity of the woman irritated her. She focused on her friends, Manchu standing by Asante to help her, 
Liam and Grace getting into position, and then paused. Under the raging storm, she heard a low thud, repeated in a rhythm like a drum in the distance. My heartbeat, a voice said in her mind. Your life has enriched my own. That is usually done by art and being a good friend, Sal thought. Also, get out of my head. They have defiled the spring. They come. They're coming, Sal shouted as the storm's wind picked up speed to a deafening roar. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Asante worked quickly, positioned behind a pillar and reading her book, murmuring some things aloud. She wasn't about to tell the group that this hadn't exactly happened the way she had intended, but everything still fit into her plan, so they didn't need to know. Menchu had her back, she had the Pythias, and the younger generation was there to flail about and kick some butt. They would be fine. That thought kept her calm for 1.4 seconds and was shattered when the rhinoceros charged into the temple. The beast had a shimmery outline, and Asante shouted that it was an illusion, but the others didn't hear her, or didn't believe her, and scattered. The thing charged for the Pythia, but she didn't move. This had blood and knives, not 
blood and rhinos, Asante thought, and fought to keep her focus while it ran toward and then through the Pythia. The assassin struck in the chaos brought by the rhino. The storm was a defensive mechanism the temple itself offered, but it seemed to hinder Grace, Sal, and Liam as much or more than it did the assassins. Asante struggled to concentrate. In the aftermath of the illusion's charge, Ingrid, Gala, two bodyguards, and an older man strode into the room. I was hoping you'd bring your brother, Liam called. I planned to knock some teeth out of his head. The women stiffened, but the older man simply gazed around as if he were a lion surveying his savanna. Like his grandchildren, he looked as if neither hurrying nor polyester ever entered his mind. He was too important, too rich, too polished for that. It was obvious where his grandchildren got their slick bravado from. On them, it looked like spoiled rich kids tromping around in mommy's mink coat and heels, but this guy owned the royalty of old magic and old money, and acted as if he owned everything else, too. Asante, he said, spying her. He didn't need to raise his voice above the storm. It carried straight to her ears as if they were alone in a silent room. Around him, the bodyguards tried to engage with Grace and Liam while the granddaughters began to weave spells. He couldn't be bothered with these minor scuffles, clearly. Far Engstrom, Asante said. No one knew his given name, so they just called him the father, Far, in Swedish, of his family. She tried to hold the spell steady in her head. The spider bite on her neck began to throb. It's been a long time. It's far, far now, he said, indicating his grandchildren proudly. She wondered what he had to be proud of, but couldn't spend the concentration thinking about this man's spoiled children. And it has been too long. I should have entered you when you botched the trade in the market. That was your own servant betraying you, Asante reminded him. Her brain buzzed with power, the spell finished and ready. And yet you still manage to be around whenever things go wrong with my family, Engstrom said. He stepped over the body of the smaller of his bodyguards, which had just crumpled after meeting Grace's bone-crunching fist. He reached into his perfectly tailored suit. Asante actually wondered if he'd had it tailored to fall smoothly around the weapons hidden in its interior, and pulled out two green knives. These were the emerald daggers stolen from a Celtic war princess's tomb 20 or so years back. Asante recognized them immediately. She groaned inwardly. You could just let us have her, the grandfather said. We aren't here for you. She knows it's going to end in blood and knives. She said as much. She even said it was her blood. Asante looked at the Pythia as if this was news to her. The Pythia nodded. It's true. We don't give up, Asante said. She saw Manchu move out of the corner of her eye. He had gone to help Grace. Ingrid and Gala were keeping Grace and Liam busy. Sal joined him. We really don't want to hurt you. We could even work together. Without taking his eyes from Asante, Farfar ducked as the other bodyguard flew over his head. Everyone knows what happens to tyrants' allies once they are done with them, Asante said. And we're not the ones getting hurt. Did you notice you're already down two bodyguards? Them? They were merely distractions, 
the Swede said. He continued to stalk forward like a cat. I couldn't have your weapon stopping us. You really should have sold her to us. Now we have to break her like a toy we don't want anyone to play with. At that moment, too many things happened. Grace cried out in pain, Sal shouted, Ingrid laughed, Gallus swore, and Farfar threw both his emerald knives with a flick of his wrist and a whisper on his tongue. They flew far too fast for a human arm to have thrown them. Magic guided and forced them on their way. One of the knives flew toward the Pythia, as Asante had expected, but she gasped as one of the knives flew directly at her. She closed her eyes and released the spell, waiting for the inevitable weapon to land home. The bodyguards were clearly a distraction. Grace could get rid of them in her sleep. Well, not the candle sleep, but regular sleep. She hadn't thought of regular sleep much. That felt odd. Still, they were bigger than Sal and Liam and faster than Menchu, so Grace had to run interference to protect them. This was wasting precious time, time for the wretched would-be slave owners to weave whatever spell they had planned. She should have just punched the women when they had walked in, made them bleed all over their immaculate clothing. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was to get rid of the bodyguards first and then the family. When she was done, she was going to talk to Sal about the plan and how they could have improved it so it wouldn't have gone so poorly. And then again, no one had anticipated the storm or the rhino. Then a tendril of silver snaked out of one of the Swede granddaughter's hands and wrapped around Grace's waist. It burned, oh, how it burned. She cried out in pain and could feel her candle flare, even though she hadn't even begun to tap into its power. They were sucking the life out of her. No, out of her candle. Extinguished the candle by exploiting her connection to it, and they wouldn't even have to search for it. She looked up and met Gala's eyes. Punishment, she whispered, although it was loud and clear in Grace's ears. If they couldn't have her, no one could. Was that it? Just use her up and toss her aside. Another second and another hour slipped by on the candle. Sal shouted something, but Grace couldn't hear what she said past the pounding in her ears. Then Gallus swore, and Grace felt the silver weaken around her. It was still there, still burning her candle, but she could access some of the power for herself. She looked up in gratitude, expecting to see Sal fighting with Gala. But it was Liam. Grace burned, the world blurred, and then there was blood. Liam cleaned up Grace's mess, punching the downed bodyguards to make sure they didn't get back up. His mind roiled with the criticisms of the others. Maybe he was too much of a follower, but did they want him to openly rebel? What would that look like? Not helping them? Not finding their answers online? Not backing up the magical muscle of the group with regular muscle? He watched the grandfather stride toward Asante and wondered if he should help her. Then Grace got caught up in some magic shit the sisters were throwing out, and Liam moved. His eyes met Sal's, and they agreed immediately. Sal had Asante. He would get Grace. Liam wondered what would hurt these women. Physical pain, sure, but their wealth, their status, their ridiculous mink and suede, and who the fuck knew what that jacket was made of? Whale skin, for all he knew. Clothing would be a place they wouldn't expect an attack. He pulled a bandage off his hand and squeezed it. Pain flared, but blood flowed again. 
and he clenched his left fist and held the sword in his right hand. Blood dripped from his fist, and he ran toward Gala. She flicked a distracted finger, and a strong wind hit him. He was ready, though, and he braced himself for the assault and whatever else she was throwing at him. But as he set his feet wide apart to take the attack, he whipped his left hand just so. Blood flew through the air and splattered all over Gala's whaleskin coat. The dark spray stained it immediately, and Gala screeched. Liam leaped forward and struck at her arm with the sword. She dodged, but it had been a feint. He slapped his bloody hand on her coat again, then smacked her in the face. He let go a hysterical laugh, remembering the scene in Fight Club where Tyler Durden held a man down and bled all over him, screeching, you don't know where I've been, over and over again. The blow did nothing to hurt her, but the blood distracted her a lot. This woman didn't do much hand-to-hand, he guessed. Magic was so clean. He grabbed her white silk blouse with his bloody hand and gave her a good old-fashioned Irish bar brawl headbutt. She cried out and staggered backward, blood streaming from her nose. But the real damage had been done. Her concentration was broken enough to let Grace get free, and she was beside him, punching Gala in the chest and sending her sailing out of the temple. Grace gave him a quick once-over. You didn't use your sword, she mentioned. He shrugged. You okay? She grinned. Yes, thanks. Then a thunderclap sounded from behind them, not from the storm outside. They turned and found Menchu and Sal down, Sal bleeding from her arm, and the oracle with her head on Asante's lap, two green knives sprouting from her chest. There was blood fucking everywhere. Ingrid ran out after her sister, not even bothering with a parting shot. As they rushed to see if Sal was all right, the grandfather strolled past them his expensive shoes leaving bloody footprints on the marble of the temple. Grace tended to Sal while Liam helped Manchu to his feet. They both looked to Asante, who knelt with the oracle. The Pythia lay on her side, looking into Asante's face. The younger woman's face was pale, her eyes wide and frightened. The floor was covered in blood, so much blood. Sal stood behind them, clutching her arm. Blood seeped out from under her fingers, running down her jacket sleeve. Did we win? Liam asked. It should have been easy, as Hunty had implied it would be. But they hadn't counted on the grandfather making an appearance. Or of him attacking with more than one weapon, or the storm that was supposed to be on their side, or the aching stigmata, minor compared to the other problems, but no one operated well with an injured hand. When the grandfather had pulled the two knives, Sal stepped forward, but then Grace got caught up in a silver rope spell and looked caught like a fish in a net. She was closer to Asante, Liam was closer to Grace. She nodded to Liam, hoped he would do the right thing, and ran toward the Pythia. She dove to tackle Asante and the Pythia to get them out of the way of the knives, but light flared and the Pythia was gone. Sal grabbed Asante and twisted so the woman would fall on top of her. They didn't quite make it, and she felt the green knife slice easily through her jacket and bite into her arm. Then it turned in midair like a torpedo in a movie, ignoring all laws of physics, and thumped home into the Pythia's back. The oracle had returned from wherever she had gone, but now with a knife in the chest and a knife between her shoulder blades. She sank to her knees. Her eyes were open and glassy, and she toppled onto her side. Asante rolled over and caught her head, cradling it.
Well done, the grandfather said and walked out, stepping into the puddle of blood seeping from the Pythia. Blood swelled around his expensive leather shoes and clung to them, leaving red footprints on the way out of the temple. The storm increased its fury and howled around them as the Pythia reached up and touched Asante's face, leaving a bloody mark. She said something that Sal missed and then closed her eyes. Did we win? asked Liam. I'm not sure, honestly, Sal said, looking at the women on the floor. They're getting away. We should go after them, Liam said. Without waiting for her answer, he turned and ran. Grace walked up beside her. You okay? Sal asked. I've been better, Grace said. She was not injured that Sal could tell, but her face was as pale as the Pythia's, and she looked exhausted. She swayed a bit, and Sal slipped her good arm around Grace's waist to hold her up. You're hurt? Grace asked, looking at the blood dripping from her other sleeve. Sal shrugged. I'm angrier about the jacket. It was a gift from... Perry. Her voice hitched a little, but she didn't elaborate. I am going after Liam, Menchu said. He'll need backup. Sal nodded, and she and Grace walked to Asante, who looked shaken and tired, like Grace. It wasn't supposed to go that way, she said, looking up at them. Clearly, Grace said, looking down at the Pythia. Asante removed the knives from the body and laid it on her back. She closed the woman's eyes. That's all we can do. The temple will take care of the rest. I thought her priestesses all died, Sal said. There are always more, Asante said. They will be called? Apollo doesn't abandon Delphi. Grace snorted. All the times we've been here, he's been absent, she said. Lightning crashed outside and Sal flinched, but Grace didn't act as though she noticed. In the bright flash of light, the temple was white again. The red flush was gone from the walls and floor. The blood had disappeared. What did she say at the end? Sal asked. She said, I've seen it all, and it's more than you imagined, Asante said. What does that mean? I don't know. Asante didn't meet her eyes. You're lying, Grace said. Asante didn't confirm or deny. Fine, Grace said. We need to go. Liam might need us. Asante got to her feet, still looking troubled. The three women exited the Temple of Delphi into the storm, and behind them the doors slammed shut. Apollo was apparently back to deal with the body of his oracle. Liam ran as fast as he dared through the dark, stormy forest, tracking the lights of the fleeing assassins and getting soaked in the process. They didn't take any care to be stealthy. Ingrid was laughing at their triumph. Gallo was whining about being hid in her ruined clothes. And the grandfather was telling them both to be quiet. How far did the magical forest go? Liam knew they had to switch back to the regular world soon, and he wasn't sure what he was going to do when that happened. The world was already taking on a disorienting light, flickering like a buggy computer game. He was reaching the boundary of the forest. If he didn't catch them now, he didn't know what would happen when they left the forest and he was still here. He neared them and he could finally see their backs. The storm was slowing now and the rain didn't cover his steps as well. Still, they didn't even notice him until he put on a burst of speed and leapt at the blonde hair and fur coat that had trailed behind the others.
Gala was not soaking wet like he was. These people must use magic like the rich used money, throwing it at every little inconvenience. She went down like a house of cards when he tackled her, though, without any magical defenses at the ready. They rolled once and ended up with Liam astride her, shouting. She was covered in blood still, which was gratifying. He was about to deliver a threat worthy of the holy warrior he desperately wanted to be, but froze as a blade came against his throat. Get off my granddaughter, you worthless piece of grime. Liam stood carefully, and Gallus scooted out from underneath him. The patriarch stood behind him, the knife biting gently at his skin. You people can't figure out when you're beaten, can you? He asked. Liam didn't answer. He was waiting for the eldest Engstrom to decide whether to kidnap him or kill him. He didn't expect the man to let him go. The grandfather tensed and Liam could feel his decision lock in. Murder then. Before the patriarch could plunge the knife in, Liam brought both hands up to the knife and grabbed the older man's hand. The knife sliced into Liam's neck, but then it was gone, held momentarily against his chest, flat and safe. And then Liam pulled the hand away, up and then down as he spun away from him. The grandfather gave a strangled shout and bent over as Liam forced him to follow his movements or else have his elbow broken. Liam kept his grip tight on the man's knife hand, thumbs pressing hard into the long bones and back. Grace had taught him several knife defenses. You will get cut when there are knives against your skin, she warned. But the difference is a superficial wound or a deadly one. His superficial wound bled down his neck. He would have to tell Grace that she was right. Back away, or I'll break his arm, he said. Gallus scrambled to her feet, but before she could say anything, Ingrid waved her hand and Liam felt a great force hit him like a strong wind. He lost his grip on the old man and flew backward. Ingrid waved her hand again, the forest flickered, and the family winked away. Menchu came up behind him, panting. Are you all right? Liam got up calmly. Yeah, I'm great. You shouldn't have taken on three at once. Manchu chided. You knew you couldn't take them all. I wasn't trying to, Liam said, starting to walk back to the temple. I was trying to distract them so I could slip a BEMP spider into Gala's tacky whale skin coat. Manchu's mouth hung open. You did what? A baby electromagnetic pulse spider, that's what I call it, but it's really just a little bug that interferes with technology, kind of like magic does. But it's 100% tech. And what does that accomplish? Menchu asked, applying pressure to Liam's neck. They won't be able to post anything online until they get rid of that coat, which will keep this whole event secret for a little longer. And it will be really annoying. He grinned. Menchu frowned. But tech and magic don't work terribly well together. Liam took a handkerchief from his pocket and replaced Menchu's hand with his own. Yeah. So they can't post online when they're close to magic anyway. When they get away from it, then the BEMP will mess with their computers and phones. Unless she finds it first, and she'd need a lice comb to get all the way through her pockets. The forest flickered again, and they were out. They blinked around them in surprise and saw a helicopter over the trees flying off. The rest of the team waited by the anointing river, which had turned red. Sal approached them. Let's go home. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, 
your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.